0: The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com.
1: We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis And today, the next passage we come to is Genesis chapter 45, verse 1 through chapter 46, verse 34. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brother, come near to me please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there, there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all the house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And that his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me, and I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. May God bless the reading of his word.
0: Amen. Thank you, Natalie. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're told that the one who delights in your word is like a tree planted by streams of water that uh, yields its fruit in season, and that has leaves that do not wither. We want to be that tree. So please, Lord, open up your word to us this morning so that we can be rooted in your word, nourished by your word, and, and sustained by your word. Holy Spirit, use the things taught in this passage to change us from within. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Deism is the belief that God created this universe, but then took a step back and no longer has any interaction with what he created. The god of deism is often compared to a watchmaker who makes a watch, but then doesn't really need to do anything else in order for that watch to function properly. The watchmaker is able to leave the watch alone, and it does what it's supposed to do just fine. Likewise, uh, deists believe God created the universe, but was then able to take his hands off of it and essentially let the universe run itself. God no longer has any involvement with us or the world that he created. And even though I imagine most of us in this room probably wouldn't consider ourselves to be deists, perhaps we're often more deistic than we like to imagine. You see, it's so easy for us to fall into the mentality, almost without even realizing it, that when it comes to our circumstances, God's up there, and we're down here. And that God isn't really actively involved in most of the circumstances we face in our day-to-day lives. Like, maybe he intervenes from time to time, but for the most part, he's somewhat like distant and disconnected from the events of everyday life. Now, as I describe that mentality out loud, most of us probably recognize that's not an accurate view of God. But if we're honest, isn't that the view of God in which we often function? Are we not, in certain ways and at uh, certain times, functional? deists. And this functionally deistic mentality shows up in numerous ways in our lives. It shows up, for example, in our frequent uh, lack of contentment with the way things are going and the discouragement that we often battle related to our circumstances. It also shows up in the anxiety that we often have about how something's going to turn out or what the future will hold. All of these things are symptoms of the fact that we're not living with enough of an awareness of how intimately involved God is with every circumstance that we find ourselves facing or that we ever will face. And that's why I'm so thankful for the passage of Scripture before us today, Genesis 45 and 46. This passage is a wonderful reminder of just how involved God is Every detail of every event of our lives. Now, to remind you of the background here, Joseph is uh, the man we've been reading about, and we've been reading first how Joseph's brothers were so jealous of him that they actually sold him into slavery in Egypt. Yet Joseph eventually rose to become the second in command of Egypt and was given the task of selling grain from the Egyptian storehouses to uh, people of Egypt and also people from the surrounding nations uh, in the midst of the severe famine that was taking place in that region of the world. And guess who came to Egypt in order to buy grain? Well, Joseph's brothers, of course. Yes, the very same brothers who had sold him into slavery. And yet, even as they were speaking with Joseph, they didn't recognize him. You know, Joseph, of course, uh, looked a lot different as a high-ranking Egyptian official than he had as a you know, simple old country boy from Canaan. And so it's understandable that Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him. And yet, Joseph did recognize them and use that to his advantage. He decided to test them to see if they changed at all since he last knew them, because he needed to know who he was dealing with and uh, whether his brothers weren't um, the same ruthless people who had previously sold him into slavery after they had seriously discussed the idea of killing him. Because if Joseph's brothers hadn't changed and he did welcome them with open arms into Egypt, then it was probably only a matter of time before they did something in Egypt and caused significant trouble for him there. So Joseph had to know their character, and that's why he tested them, as we've seen, by arranging, them, uh, arranging for them to be in a very dire situation. He made it appear as though they had stolen something from him and would have to face a severe penalty for doing so. Yet in reality, he was watching them to see how they'd respond. And they did, thankfully, pass the test. And that brings us to where we are this morning. The tension and the emotional intensity of the story have been gradually rising and are now at a climax. We read in Genesis 45, 1 through 3. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now, just think about for a moment what this must have been like for Joseph's brothers. This whole time, they've assumed that they've been dealing, uh, the person they've been dealing with is a rough and stern Egyptian official who would just as soon imprison them as sell them grain. And now they discover it's even worse than they thought. This stern official who has the power to do virtually whatever he wants to them isn't some random stranger that they've never met before, but their very own brother whom they sold into slavery. So can you imagine like what must have been going through their minds? Like, oh no, <laughs> like, this is not good. And verse three uh, even tells us that Joseph's brothers were so dismayed at his presence that they were speechless. We then read in verses four through eight, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So here, Joseph changes his tone completely from what it's been in the previous chapters. You know, previously, when he was testing them, Joseph spoke to them in a pretty like, rough manner. But we now see him comforting them. And he does that by explaining how even though they did sin against him by selling him into slavery, it was a pretty significant thing they did, God, though, was actually the one behind everything that happened and was working the whole time, even through their sin, to accomplish his perfect purposes. Joseph then tells them in verses 9 through 11, "Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet 5 years of famine to come." so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. This invitation is then confirmed by Pharaoh himself in verses 16 through 20. It says, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and Go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." So Pharaoh not only repeats Joseph's invitation, but actually enlarges it, right? He offers Joseph's family not just a place to live in Egypt, but also the promise of generous material provisions. He even grants them use of the, uh, the royal limousine service there, you know, with all the wagons to come and take the, the wives and the children to Egypt. We then read in verses 25 through 28, So they, Joseph's brothers, And Israel, another name for Jacob, said, It is enough, Joseph, my son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Then, after that, chapter 46 records Joseph, or Jacob rather, taking his massive family, totaling 70 people in all, plus all of his servants and livestock and all his other possessions, and moving to the land of Egypt. Uh, God appears to him in a dream and tells him that it's okay for him to uh, temporarily leave the promised land and go to Egypt and promises uh, Jacob that one day God will bring him back to the promised land. And we also find an extensive list of all the people in Jacob's family, including his children and grandchildren. And we then read about the tearful reunion between Jacob and his long lost son joseph so the main idea of this passage is that god was working behind the scenes through all the events of joseph's life to accomplish his perfect purposes again god was working behind the scenes through all the events of joseph's life to accomplish his perfect purposes And we see this idea come to the foreground, especially in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 45. Notice all the statements that Joseph makes about God's sovereignty or the fact that God's in control. He tells his brothers in verse 5 that God sent me before you to preserve life. Then says it again in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. And then in verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And once more, in the second part of verse 8, he, God, has made me ruler of all the land of Egypt. Four distinct statements, all saying essentially the same thing. That God was the one who orchestrated it all to accomplish his purposes. Namely, Saving Joseph's family from starvation. I love the observation that one commentator named Kent Hughes makes about this passage. He writes, Ultimately, and above all, the story of Joseph is about God working his will through the everyday events of life. There are no miracles here. God does not suspend his natural laws to make things happen. The story is about the hidden but sure way of God. God's hidden hand arranges everything without show or explanation or violating the nature of things. God is involved in all events and directs all things to their appointed end. And what a God he is because he is a God. I love how he says says this. He is not just a God of the extraordinary. But a God of the ordinary. Isn't that a great insight? There aren't any dramatic miracles in this passage. You know, there's no parting of the Red Sea, as would be the case several centuries later. There's no grand display of God's power through other miraculous phenomena. Instead, what we find here is God at work silently, in a very behind the scenes uh, kind of way. To bring about the things he desires. His invisible hand has been guiding Jacob and Joseph and Joseph's brothers and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. And the the cupbearer of Pharaoh and even Pharaoh himself. All to accomplish his perfect will. And that's a great reminder, dear friends, that God's at work in our lives as well. Even if we don't see any grand miracles, God's still at work in every detail of every event of our lives. Like his sovereignty is woven into it all. Contrary to what we often imagine, he's anything but The distant and disconnected God of deism, instead of the the God of the Bible, is intimately involved with every aspect of our circumstances. Whether we're conscious of it or not, his invisible hand is writing our stories. And there are three primary ways in which all this should make a difference in our day-to-day lives. Um, Three ways. Uh, I'll list them so you can write them down if you want, and then I'll explain them. Forgiveness for past hurts, joy in present circumstances, and peace about future uncertainties. Again, forgiveness for past hurts, joy in present circumstances, and peace about future uncertainties. So first, forgiveness for past hurts. As we think about the ways others have hurt us in the past, it's easy to allow resentment to build up within us and eventually calcify, as it were, into deep rooted bitterness. Yet when we remember that God's actively involved in all of our circumstances, including the ways others have wronged us in the past, and also that he uses evil to accomplish good, that helps us forgive others for the things they've done against us. This, of course, is something we see very clearly in the story of Joseph, isn't it? Here in Genesis 45, a key reason why Joseph's able to resist the temptation to punish his brothers and instead extend forgiveness to them is because he sees how God was at work through their evil actions. Remember, he says to them in verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So Joseph's very aware of the sin his brothers committed against him. Right? He hasn't suffered amnesia. He hasn't forgotten. Yet he tells them not to be distressed or angry with themselves, because... God had a purpose for their evil actions. Likewise, with us, the, the way others have sinned against us, it, it might be quite serious. And the reality of their sin might be undeniable. And God will hold them accountable for what they've done. Yet at the same time, we can also be sure that God was used their evil actions to accomplish his own good purposes, and that should help us extend forgiveness to them. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, for I myself must be very thankful to my enemies for pummeling, pressing, and terrifying me. That is, for making me a fairly good theologian, for otherwise I would not have become one. Uh, Luther, of course, lived back in the 1500s and endured more than a few trials in his quest to reform the corrupt church of his day and eventually to establish a church that was true to the gospel. Things were so intense that uh, Martin Luther's life was often in very real danger. And his enemies were also not uh, unwilling (laughs) to uh, do other things, to publicly slander him, and uh, to undermine his ministry however they could. They they wanted to humiliate him, whatever they could do. And yet, he actually says that he's thankful to them for the terrible things they've done against him. Because, he says, those trials have made him into a fairly good theologian. His enemies were undoubtedly trying to harm him. But God used their evil deeds to accomplish his own good purposes in Luther's life. Forming him and shaping him into the man God wanted Luther to be. Similarly, it's good for us to recognize that the wrongs others have committed against us have played no small part in making us into the people we are today. All this also uh, helps us resist the mentality that seems to be all too common in society today of embracing an identity of victimhood. Now, victimhood is a real thing, right? People really do suffer in very significant and legitimate ways because of the sins others commit against them. But it's very problematic when someone embraces victimhood as a core component of their identity. So instead of seeking to move past uh, what others have done against them, uh, there are many people who seem like they just desire to wallow in self-pity. And uh, Joseph, when you think about it, he could have easily done that if he had wanted to. I mean, plenty of people had wronged Joseph, as we've seen throughout these past 10 chapters of Genesis. And let's be honest, that's probably what our contemporary society would have encouraged Joseph to do, right? And yet, Joseph's conduct in this passage reminds us that even though others might have sinned against us in some very significant ways, we don't have to be held hostage by a victimhood mentality. And one thing that helps us break free from that mentality is remembering that no matter how serious the wrongs others have committed against us have been, that we serve a God who's able to take those wrongs. And turn them around and use them for good. Now, that doesn't make those things okay or in any way morally permissible. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek justice uh, for those wrongs through the appropriate channels. But it does give us a starting point for moving on with our lives. Not as perpetual victims... But has dearly loved children of God. Then second, not only does remembering these truths about God's sovereignty enable us to extend forgiveness for past hurts, it also enables us to have joy in present circumstances. If life isn't going the way we want it to, it's very easy to become weighed down with discouragement. And discontent, at times it even seems like some people live in a perpetual state of discouragement and discontent. Yet when we remember that God's intimately involved with our circumstances, yes, even the ones we're experiencing right now, (laughs) we can rejoice in the fact that those circumstances are accomplishing His purposes. No matter how difficult or uncomfortable things might be that we're currently facing, God's using them in some way to do something glorious. As Romans 8.28 so famously says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. That means, dear friends, that every circumstance we encounter is a tile in the beautiful mosaic of God's perfect plan. We may not be able to see how that tile fits into the mosaic and contributes to the overall beauty of the mosaic, but we know it does. And if we could see the full mosaic the way God sees it, then we would see. We would understand why each tile is so necessary. I'm convinced that when we get to heaven, we will have that understanding. But in the meantime, we simply take God's word for it and rest in his promise that all things work together for good. And notice there that there are no exceptions to that. Right? It doesn't say that some things work together for good. It says all things work together for good. That means God's never like, whoops, missed that one. No. Without exception, he causes every circumstance to work together for good. No exceptions. And this applies not only to the difficult things, that happens to us but also to the desirable things that we want to happen but that don't happen <laughs> or at least don't happen as quickly as we'd like them to so for example when you don't get a certain job that you apply for let's say there's a reason for you not getting that job if your desire for a spouse is deferred or your, your desire for children is deferred, there are reasons for those deferments. God's working through it all. All the difficulties and disappointments that we face have a purpose. And we have to learn to believe that and to rest in that, even when we can't imagine what that purpose could possibly be. You know, I've heard it compared to a, a young boy who's playing at the feet of his grandmother as she's uh, working on a cross-stitching project. Now, for all you Gen Zers out there who don't know what cross-stitching is, we have a picture of it. Um, this is what a cross-stitch looks like. It's basically, a, I guess, a method of sewing to make various homemade decorations. And uh, the thing about a cross-stitch is that the back of it looks a lot different than the front. It looks like messy and jumbled and uh, sometimes unrecognizable. So imagine a young boy playing at his grandmother's feet as she's working on uh, one of these cross stitches. All that little boy can see as he looks up at the cross stitch is the chaotic pattern of all those loose threads and jumbled colors on the back. In all likelihood, he he probably has no idea what she's making. But the reason he's confused isn't because there's anything wrong with the cross stitch. It's simply because of his own limited perspective. He can't see the beautiful artwork that's being created on the other side. Similarly, God's at work in all the circumstances of our lives. Even when we can't see, we we can't even imagine how those circumstances could possibly accomplish anything good, we're nevertheless called to trust that they are accomplishing profound good in some way that we don't understand in the present, but that we will understand in the future. And third, and finally, our confidence about God. Being at work in all things all the time, it gives us peace about future uncertainties. And of course, when I say uncertainties, uh, I'm simply speaking from a human perspective. In reality, there actually are no uncertainties because God's at work and won't fail to accomplish everything he desires both now and in the future. And our confidence of that reality is precisely what enables us to have peace. Even as we think about aspects of our future that appear uncertain from our limited human perspective. And maybe this morning you're struggling with feelings of anxiety about what's going to happen with your finances. Or uh, maybe your health. Or maybe how a certain situation you're, with your children is going to turn out. Or maybe just reading all the news headlines gets you feeling anxious. You know, there are so many things that, that seem to be so uncertain related to global events. You know, are we you know, headed towards some kind of armed conflict with other world powers? Will there eventually be some kind of a nuclear war? Or even within our own country, you know, is economic disaster just around the corner? what's going to happen with the next presidential election. There are so many things we don't know the answers to, and that seem terribly uncertain from our limited human perspective. And that can make us anxious. Yet instead of being anxious about our future, guys, we can rest in the truth that we see here in Genesis 45 and 46. The, The truth that Our future and the future of this entire world is in the hands of a sovereign God who always works for our good. Brothers and sisters, never forget that even though some people might like to think that they're in control and that they rule the world, we know that ultimately God rules this world. And one day, God's sovereign and supreme rule over this world will be seen by everyone in a very visible way, to say the least. Um, One author compares it to a a game that kids sometimes like to play called the King of the Hill. Listen to this description. In that game, all the kids push and fight as they battle over who will stand atop the hill as the king. Eventually, the biggest, strongest kid wins and stands on the hill, gloating at victory. The other, kids, the other kids who lost then band together as an alliance, hoping that their combined efforts to overthrow, can overthrow the king of the hill. Eventually, they wear down the king of the hill, and someone from their group becomes the new king. Those who are not the king then repeat the process of plotting and overthrowing the current king of the hill. The author then goes on to observe that in reality, all of human history is basically a version of that kid's game, played by adults who fight to get their way with legal maneuvering, personal threatening, public attacking, and private deal-making. If you pay any attention to what's happening culturally, you can quickly grow despondent. Different sides fight to get their king on the hill, and even if they make it, eventually someone else knocks their king off the hill. And the culmination of all the battling seems to get us nowhere. Thankfully, though, that's of course not the end of the story. This current state of affairs won't last forever because one day, dear friends, Jesus will return and proclaim himself not just the king of the hill, but the king of every hill. And he'll establish his reign, not just for four years. Not just for eight years, but for all eternity. History has a destination. And that destination is Jesus. As a result, we don't have to worry about what the future holds. Because we know that God is sovereign and is working through every detail of every event, not only in our lives personally and for our personal good, but to accomplish his cosmic purpose of Jesus being established as King of kings and Lord of lords. And our main passage in Genesis reminds us of these precious truths. It pulls back the curtain and shows us how God was actively working Behind the scenes, through all the events of Joseph's life, from his brothers selling him into slavery, to Potiphar's wife falsely accusing him of trying to rape her, to Joseph being imprisoned because of that false accusation, and then eventually to Joseph rising to become second in command of Egypt and rescuing his family from the famine. God was working in and through it all to accomplish His glorious purpose. He was doing something glorious the whole time. And yet all the workings of God we read about in Genesis are merely preparatory for an exponentially greater example of God working in unforeseen and unexpected ways to accomplish his perfect purpose. You see, just as Joseph's family needed to be rescued from starvation, we needed to be rescued from our sin. The Bible teaches us that our sins have separated us from a holy God and made us deserving of eternal punishment. And yet in his love, God came to our rescue. He sent his own son Jesus to come to this earth and live a perfectly sinless life and then die on the cross in our place. Jesus endured God the Father's judgment on the cross so that we wouldn't have to endure it in hell. Our sins, in reality, cried out for God's punishment. But Jesus stepped in and suffered that punishment in our place and as our substitute. He then resurrected from the dead so that he is Now able to offer forgiveness and rescue and eternal life to everyone who puts their trust in him. So just like God worked in an unforeseen and unexpected way through Joseph to save his family from starvation, he also worked in an unforeseen and unexpected way through Jesus to rescue us from our sin. And this is actually the purpose of God that encompasses all other purposes. God's continually at work in every detail of every event in this universe, not just to do a bunch of like, random and unrelated things, but to accomplish various aspects of this one grand and all-encompassing purpose. The purpose of redeeming his people
1: from their sin.